Hi, my name is Anthony Buzzard, and I'm speaking to you from uh, Bible College in Atlanta, Georgia. This tape is dedicated to some reflections on the very important issue of what happens to man when he dies, what happens to a Christian when he dies, what is the destiny of the believer. This gives us a welcome opportunity to explore some of the great issues of life and death. In the rush of 21st century living, how many of us pause to consider the really important questions like, for example, where did I come from, who am I, and where am I going? It's a strange thing, but people have an infinite capacity to put energy into every possible form of activity, hobbies, holidays, family, and business, and so on. But how often do we ask the really big questions? How often do we sit down and examine, verse by verse in Scripture, the destiny of man, as it's laid down in the pages of the Bible? There's nothing, it's been said, as certain as death and taxes. My goodness, many of us spend a great deal of energy grappling with taxes. But what good is all that if we never give a moment's thought to our origin and our destiny? So what is man? Who are you? Where are you headed in the long term when the time comes to die? Who are you in the grand scheme of things? These are the questions that your speaker has been considering for some 40 years, and I've been privileged to have access to, to a fund of good, good information, that bestseller of books, available now in a bewildering selection of translations, the Bible. The Bible has some very definite things and very clear things to say about what happens when we die and what our prospects are after death. Jesus himself said a great deal about this subject of death and the future life, as we shall see. I remember so well my first encounter with death. I was about 13 years old, growing up in England. My grandfather had died, and I'd been taught, or rather I think I just absorbed the ideas most people do, because death was never talked about at home, that grandfather's soul or spirit must now be happy in heaven. It was only later that I was able to examine the whole issue of the destiny of man. And so a talk like this allows an opportunity for investigating, hopefully in a calm and collected manner, what the Bible has to tell us about death and the hope of living again after death. Is there a hell? What does the Bible say about the destination of believers? Do souls or spirits go to heaven the moment they die? You may think you have a clear view of these matters. Join us for a few moments of reflection as we conduct this discussion and involve yourself with us in the search for truth. Above all, do follow the wonderful example mentioned by Luke in Acts 17.11, where he remarked that the Berean people searched the Scriptures daily to see if what they were hearing was true, and therefore many of them became true Christian believers. Our object is to take a close look at the Scripture on all of these momentous questions about the nature of man and death and destiny. Where shall we start? There's no more obvious place than in the well-known story of the creation of man in the book of Genesis, that book about beginnings. Here's a Bible verse that's familiar to many. In Genesis 2.7 we read this, God formed man, dust from the ground, and breathed into him the breath or spirit of life, and man became a living soul, or nephesh, as the Hebrew word is. Take a deep breath and relive that extraordinary first experience of the first human person, Imagine the creator of the universe forming and fashioning like a potter his prize creation, 
a human being. Notice what he was composed of. God made man dust, not just from the dust, but consisting of dust from the ground. Afar minha adama, as the Hebrew text has it. The word for ground in this verse is a form of the word Adam, the very name of the first man. So that's what man is, dust from the ground. The name of this original human person is specially chosen to remind us that he's a product of the soil made from the dust. Man, of course, was also made in the image of God, carved out in the image of God, if you like. Nevertheless, Adam is certainly a creature formed from the dust. And now we must pay close attention to the account in Genesis. Having fashioned this wonderful creation, God then animated him. It reminds me of the animation of cartoon characters. From their stillness, they suddenly leap into life. So what did God do to vitalize man? He breathed into him the breath of life, nishmat chayim, and man became a living creature. So you see, man is a composite of dust plus the life-giving spirit or breath of God. So there he is, the pinnacle of God's marvelous creation. Man was an animated being, and still is an animated being. But does that mean that he's automatically an immortal being, a being incapable of death? We need to ask a question here. What exactly is meant by man being a living soul? Does this mean that there was a part of him that could never die? Does it mean that man was death-proof? Does it mean that while his body would later die, yet his soul would go marching on, that his soul would survive consciously in the presence of God, or perhaps in a fiery hell? Is the popular line about John Brown's body moldering in the dust while his soul goes marching on true or false according to the Bible? This is one of those great fundamental questions to which we must find the right answer or else we're in danger of losing our way in the biblical revelation right from the start. So let's be very careful here in our study. Let's please not become confused about the truth of who man is by taking a leap into pagan philosophy when the Bible does its best to prevent us from thinking or teaching so unwisely. So then, man became a living soul, a nefesh chaya, when God breathed that animating power of life into him. It was then that the first man began to live. Man became a living soul, or we, as we should say in English, a living person. I want to tell you the wonderful Hebrew word appearing in the original text here, the word translated in many translations as soul. The word in Hebrew is nefesh. It means a breathing, animated being. But I'd like to point out to you right away a most important fact and invite you to check it in your own Bibles with the help of a concordance if necessary. Many of us, many of you listening, no doubt, can read the Hebrew and won't need a concordance at all. But if you check this word soul in your Bible, you'll find that that word nefesh has been used four times already in the text of Genesis before we get to the creation of man. In Genesis 1.20, we read of the marine creatures and birds that they too were created as living souls. The words are exactly the words used to describe Adam himself. He too was a living soul, a nefesh haya. Remember that wonderful play, Fiddler on the Roof, and how when those Jews celebrated, they drank a toast to life, lechayim. That's the same word as we find here. Man and the whales and the birds were all created living souls. 
And then in verse 24 of Genesis 1, we find that the livestock and the cattle were also living souls. In some of our older English translations of the Bible, we were not permitted to see this fascinating and amazing fact that animals and men are both living souls. Apparently the translators thought it too shocking to allow us to see that the word soul was used of animals, and so they reserved that word for man only, but quite unfairly and misleadingly. These translators did not allow you to see that man has a lot in common with the animals in terms of his mortality. The great truth taught here in Genesis 2-7 is that we human beings share with the animals the quality of being breathing creatures as well as mortal creatures subject to death. Well, you may respond, if that's so, what a dismal picture this paints. We have nothing more going than our dogs and cats. Well, yes and no. The bad news is that we are all subject to death. There's nothing in us at birth that makes us immortal creatures, though many religions have taught the opposite. The opposite, in fact, of the Bible. The facts are that according to Scripture in Genesis, we and the animals share a common mortality. But the good news given us in the Scripture is that we are created in the image of God with the power to reason and plan and choose and understand and love in a way that no animal can. And what's even more exciting, we're created in such a way that immortality can be given us if, and this is the great if, if we seek immortality on God's terms. All that, of course, is what Adam did not do. So life offers us, then, the greatest challenge, that is, to seek immortality and eventually finding and receiving the gift of immortality at the resurrection when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom upon the earth. That's what life is all about. And that was what Jesus was all about. He was a preacher of the secret which leads to immortality. If you like, Jesus has the formula necessary for man if he wishes to attain to his goal, that of achieving immortality via resurrection when Jesus returns to establish the golden age of the kingdom of God on the earth. Are you interested in living forever? You'd think that every person walking the planet would flock to Jesus and check out his claims to possess the secret formula to life forever, indestructible existence. I'm sure you're interested in living forever. If so, Jesus and the Bible must become your constant companions and your constant source of spiritual information. You cannot afford to neglect the potential God has given you as a human being, that of gaining immortality in the future kingdom of God. You are indeed a candidate for life in perpetuity. You must embark on the journey to immortality and remain firmly on course until you obtain it. How and when will this happen? This is what we intend to unpack in these series of discussions about life and death and destiny. We might say that as humans we are immortal to coin a word. That's to say, we have the potential to gain immortality, but we do not have it automatically. There's not a word in the whole of Scripture which tells us that we are created as immortal creatures who cannot really die. If there's one biblical fact which all students of the Bible should grasp, it is precisely this. We are not created with an innate, immortal part of us, a soul or spirit which can go on living consciously the moment after we are dead. A revolution is needed in our thinking. 
If perhaps we've been under the illusion, the grand illusion, that our souls or spirits are naturally immortal and cannot die. The fact that man is destined to die, not to survive, is the great foundational teaching of these early chapters of the Bible. How then can we live forever is the logical question that must follow from the premise that we are by nature Im not immortal but mortal. Back to the story of the man in Genesis. You know that story. The devil tempted the first couple and they were cheated out of their opportunity of gaining the very immortality which a good God intended for them. Remember, they did not have immortality built into them when they were created, but they did have the opportunity of continuing to live forever, to develop spiritually under God's guidance, and eventually to attain to immortality. If everything had gone well, if they'd done what they were supposed to do, they would have become immortal, but they didn't. You all know only too well how the story turned out. They succumbed to the clever lies of the devil, which subtly, or the devil who subtly, twisted the truth of God and turned it into a lie. And that devil, of course, told them the greatest of all lies, that they would not die even if they disobeyed God. So here was God's response to this new situation. Faced with the disobedience of his first creature, God declared, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the dust, because you were taken from it, from the dust, from the ground, because you are dust, and to dust you will return. It is one of the best established truths in contemporary systematic presentations of Old Testament biblical theology that the Hebrew idea of man is not that he is immortal by nature. It is well known that that idea of immortality comes from the Greek, Platonic, and philosophical view of man and from many pagan religions, and therefore it must be of considerable interest for us to note that despite this well-known fact that immortality is not part of what man has by nature, and yet evangelicals, when they formed the Evangelical Alliance in the last century, or rather in the 1800s, I should say, in 1846, the third point of theology on which those evangelicals agreed to form their alliance was this, the unity of the Godhead and the Trinity, and then following it, the immortality of the soul. These evangelical scholars came together in complete agreement on the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the body, the judgment of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal blessedness of the righteous, and the eternal punishment of the wicked. Now, the immortality of the soul was written into evangelical theology at that point. It should be clear to anybody with an open mind that that was a considerable error. It confronted Scripture head-on. It contradicted Scripture immediately when man was defined as having immortality innately. Now, this same evangelical alliance did indeed do lip service to the resurrection, but in a very subtle way they changed the words of Scripture. The Bible does not speak of the resurrection of the body, as though only the body needs to be resurrected, it speaks always with one voice about the resurrection of dead persons, not just their bodies. Furthermore, death in the Bible is constantly described as the sleep of the person, the sleep of the individual, of the soul. The soul goes to Sheol, or the place of, of, of death, and David in Psalm 13 verse 3 spoke of the sleep of death, 
as Jesus did in John chapter 11, where he plainly stated that Lazarus, who had died, was sleeping. Lazarus, he said, has fallen asleep, using the past perfect verb there in Greek, meaning has fallen asleep and is remaining asleep, but I'm going to wake him up out of his sleep. And so sleep is the constant image for death in the Bible, and from some 50 times in the Old Testament we find that the patriarchs and the kings of Israel, when they die, are said to fall asleep and join their fathers, their ancestors, in sleep, in the sleep of death. In the famous song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we read that God brings people down to Hades or Sheol and brings them up. We read in the Psalms of the sleep of death. In Job, constantly, death is likened to sleep. In the famous book of Daniel, the last chapter of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, we read this as a prophecy of what's going to happen by way of resurrection in the future. And I quote, Many of those, notice not those bodies, but those persons, many of those persons who are sleeping in the dust of the ground will arise, some to the life of the age and some to uh, contempt and disgrace pertaining to that age. But notice that the righteous rise to the life of the age, later called the life of the age to come, somewhat badly translated as eternal or everlasting life in our New Testament. But nevertheless, the idea is clear. They come into the life of the age to come via resurrection and from the sleep of death. There's not a word there about any souls which are immortal or surviving rejoining their bodies. On the contrary, man is seen as a psychosomatic whole. The whole man has died, and the whole man there rises from the sleep of death to gain immortality as the life of the age to come, a synonym, of course, for the kingdom of God to be, to be established on the earth when Jesus returns in power and glory to establish that kingdom. Now, Jesus had exactly the same idea in John 5, verses 28 and 29. He there talks of a time when the tombs are going to be vacated by the dead. Many of those sleeping or many of those residing in the tombs, he says, are going to come forth from those tombs, some to a resurrection of life. But you see, again, resurrection is for people who are, prior to that time, located in their tombs, just as in Daniel 12, 2, prior to the resurrection, they are located in the dust of the ground. And so children understand this well if you explain to them that according to Daniel 12, verse 2, the dead are sleeping, and where are they doing it? In the dust of the ground. Now, this simple pattern of sleep, followed by resurrection, is repeated multiple times in the New Testament. Particularly in 1 Corinthians 15, we find that the dead are going to be woken up, raised. A hero, of course, is the same word in Greek uh, for rising uh, as it is also for waking. And so the waking from the sleep of, of death simply confirms that Old Testament pattern. Furthermore, we learn that in the Old Testament, in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5, and later in the 10th verse of that same chapter, that there's no activity, no planning, uh, no function at all for human beings in shale. In fact, the dead know nothing at all. They're completely out of it, unconscious and deprived of the ability even to praise God. They're simply asleep, waiting resurrection. Death, therefore, is likened to the situation of a person being put under an anesthetic when undergoing an operation. He closes his eyes, and the next second of his consciousness, he awakes and finds that time has mysteriously elapsed, 
He's been quite unconscious of the passage of time. It's exactly like that in regard to death in the Bible. When we die, we fall asleep, and the next second of our consciousness, if we're believers, we will emerge in the resurrection, that resurrection which is going to take place when Jesus returns in power and glory to establish his great kingdom upon a renewed earth, as so many passages say. It will be at that time that Jesus will award uh, rewards to his faithful servants according to their deeds. He will grant the life of the age to come to the faithful and involve them then in the reconstruction, the renewing, reorganization of a, a new world economy, a new world dispensation, the new order of the kingdom of God as it will be. But the main point to be gathered from this discussion is that there is no intermediate consciousness for Christians or for the wicked, for that matter, prior to resurrection. We know that other scriptures speak of the resurrection of everyone, uh, that's to say the wicked as well, for judgment. There will indeed be a resurrection, as Paul said in Acts 26, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. But the resurrection of the faithful is to occur at the seventh trumpet, and that seventh trumpet mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 as the last trumpet is the moment at which the dead will reappear from the state of death, from the sleep of death. They will be immortalized, and they will proceed then to rule and reign with Christ as kings upon the earth. Revelation 5, verse 10. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul likewise spoke of being absent from this body in order to be present with the Lord in the resurrection, equipped with the new body. Unfortunately, that half verse in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, has been pulled out of context. But in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14 onwards, we set the scene for Paul's whole discussion. He says that just as Jesus was raised from death, so God will raise the Christians from death. His whole topic there is resurrection, as it was indeed in his earlier letter written about a, a year before in 1 Corinthians 15. There's no change of topic at all. Paul simply compares there the present body, which is decaying, with the glorious body of the resurrection, which we're going to attain at the resurrection. And so we want to be absent from our decaying bodies. We want to fall asleep in death. We don't want to be naked. We do not want to be disembodied. The very thing, in fact, that's promised by preachers at funeral services and obituary notices, disembodiment, the very thing that Paul shrinks from. Rather, he says, we want to be equipped and empowered and invested with our new body, which we, of course, will gain only at the resurrection. Any antedating of the great resurrection moment of history, the great immortalizing moment of history, the moment when indestructible life is conferred on the righteous, any antedating of this runs the risk of undermining the entire biblical program. It falls into the dangerous category of Gnosticism. And Paul, you remember, in, in the Timothys, warned that there were certain members of the church who were saying the resurrection had taken place already. Now, Christians may not say that, but they come sailing very close to the wind in terms of error if they suggest that immortality can have been gained this side of the resurrection. As William Tyndale said so beautifully to the Pope, what's the point of a resurrection if souls are already in heaven? And so it's good to remember that the great reformers, Luther even, William Tyndale and others, protested the very popular idea that the immortal soul or spirit departs at the instant of death to a heavenly glory. That's to undermine the New Testament program and to make it largely incomprehensible. A great deal of reform is required in this, in this era, in this area, and it will begin when we first grasp the idea of who man is, a mortal, 
creature subject to death, able, however, to work towards immortality through the help of the Spirit of God and believing the gospel of the kingdom. And when he's done that and survived in a lifetime of trial and so on, then he'll be worthy to attain to the kingdom of God via resurrection. Immortality, indestructible life will be conferred upon him at that time. Now, read in the light of that simple system, that simple model of understanding, the New Testament takes on a brand new and brilliant uh, light. Many passages which might have seemed obscure become crystal clear. Whether we are sleeping, Paul says, or whether we're awake, that's to say whether we're dead in the sleep of death or whether we're surviving when Christ comes back, we will live together with Christ in the resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 10. And so returning then to our initial question, what happens when we die? What impression do you gain from these verses drawn from a range of Scripture in the Old Testament through the New? God had said to Adam, you're dust and you're going to return to the dust. Genesis 3.19. Again, the soul which sins, the soul who sins, is going to die. Ezekiel 18, verse 4. Can the soul possibly be immortal in the Bible when it is plainly threatened with death in that verse and many others? 1 Samuel 2, 6-8 The Lord kills and makes alive. The Lord brings down to Sheol, or Hades, and raises up. So making alive there is the equivalent of raising up or waking up. In the book of Job, man dies. In the 14th chapter, man dies and lies prostrate. Man lies down to sleep, that is. The Hebrew word there indicates lying down to sleep. He lies down and does not rise until the heavens be no more. He will not be awakened nor roused from his sleep. And then Job, Job says, hide me in Sheol. If a man dies, he says, will he live again? And notice the question was not, if a man dies, will he go on living? But if a man dies, will he come back from the state of death? Which is a very different question. Will my hope go down into Sheol, asks a writer in the book of Genesis. Shall we together go down into the dust? Enlighten my eyes, the psalmist says, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Psalm 13, verse 3. My soul has had enough troubles. My life has drawn near to Sheol, Hades. I am reckoned like those who go down to the pit, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, in dark places, and they're cut off from your hand. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the shades rise and praise you? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Those words of Psalm 88 surely put beyond all doubt that the condition of the dead is one of forgetfulness in a dark place hidden in the underground world of Sheol, Hades. Again, in Psalm 146, verse 4, man's spirit departs, he returns to the earth. To dust he will return, you remember in Genesis. He returns to the earth. His spirit departs, he, the personal pronoun, goes with the body there, with the person, though his spirit, his life energy, of course, leaves him. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. Ecclesiastes 9, 5 and 10, we read, the living know that they will die, but the dead do not know anything. They don't have any reward, for their memory is forgotten. 
There's no activity or planning or wisdom in Sheol, Hades, where you are going. Man and beasts all go to the same place, all have the same breath, and there's no advantage for man over beast. All go to the same place, all came from the dust, and all go to the dust. And again we're reminded of Genesis, where man is said that when he sins, he's to die and return to the dust from which he was taken. you find that quotation I just read there in Ecclesiastes 3, 19 and 20. And then the great prophecy of the future. Many of those who are sleeping in the dust of the earth will awake, some to the life of the age to come, the Chaye Olam of Daniel 12, 2. Zoe Aeonios in the Septuagint Greek. Go your way, Daniel, to the end of your life. You will enter into rest and rise again at the end of the age for your allotted portion. So what are the dead doing and where are they doing it? Well, they're sleeping and they're sleeping in the dust of the ground. And Daniel surely could not have misunderstood that the promise of resurrection for him was to be at the end of the days, the end of the age, and until that time he must rest peacefully in the state and condition of death. Now, Jesus said the same thing in the New Testament, and as Christians we're supposed to sound like Jesus and not like, like somebody influenced by the pagan notion of the departing platonic soul. Do not marvel at this, Jesus said in John 5:28 and 29, an hour is coming when all those who are in the tombs, compare this with sleeping in the dust of the earth in Daniel 12:2. all those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth to life, or to judgment, a resurrection indeed of life, or a resurrection of judgment. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John 12, verse 10. And how did that resurrection happen? Well, Jesus says our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, he is asleep, I'm going to wake him out of his sleep. Lazarus is dead, he said. Compare again with the verse in Psalm 13, verse 3, the sleep of death. And so we read that Lazarus came forth from the tomb, John 11:43. Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. John 12:17. Now Paul said, God has not only raised the Lord, but it will also raise us up through his power. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 14. And then in the letter which he wrote one year later to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14, he introduces his subject there, his long discourse on the nature of our present decaying body and the hope for the great resurrection body in the future. He begins by saying in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14, He who raised the Lord will also raise us with Jesus and present us to him with you in one great collective event. When all the saints join together in the resurrection event in order to be presented to the Messiah in that glorious day. And after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter says in his great sermon in Acts 2, The patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is with us until this day. David did not ascend to heaven. David did not go to heaven, Peter said. David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers, who were also asleep, incidentally. And David underwent decay. But he whom God raised, that's Jesus, did not undergo decay. Acts 2, verses 24, 29, and Acts 13, verses 36 and 37. Now we read further in the New Testament that those who belong to Christ will be raised at his coming. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. Indeed, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised or woken up to immortality. 1 Corinthians 15, 
verses 50 and following. At the sound of the last trumpet, in Revelation 11, verses 15 and following, the seventh trumpet, the dead will be raised and given immortality, and it's only then, not a moment earlier, that Hades, or the grave, is overcome. Thus, in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 and following verses, Paul quotes from the book of Hosea, chapter 13, verse 14, I will deliver them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? So Paul sees in this verse in Hosea the great event of the liberation of Sheol, Hades, and it's going to happen, Paul says, only at the last trumpet when Jesus returns. It's the great event of the resurrection, which he everywhere says will happen when Jesus comes back. The liberation of Hades cannot have happened already, but there is unfortunately a legend that circulated in the second century, the legend that Jesus had liberated Hades when he went down to Hades himself. That, of course, completely threw into confusion the New Testament scheme. But many seem to want to believe that in opposition to the evidence of the New Testament. Any theory which says that Hades or Sheol was liberated by Jesus already collides with this statement in 1 Corinthians 15.55. Hades is overcome only in the future. Even when the book of Revelation was written in 96 AD, Jesus is still the one who has the keys of death and Hades. He has not yet used them. But later in Revelation 20, death and Hades give up their dead. And in the early part of Revelation 20, we read of the first resurrection of the saints, that is, to rule with Christ for a thousand years. And so also the story is exactly the same in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 10. Paul expects the Christians to be either asleep in death or surviving awake on earth. Whether we're awake or asleep, whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. The condition before all the Christians come to life together in the resurrection, is called, again, sleeping. Exactly the same as Daniel 12, verse 2. Many of those who are sleeping in the dust of the ground will awake, some to the life of the age to come. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 4:13, the Lord will descend from heaven with the shout of the angel and the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And he speaks there of Christ bringing to life the dead, as the New English Bible translates it. Jesus will bring with him the saints, that's to say, he'll bring them with him after having raised them from death. Paul, you see, there says, just as Jesus was raised, so the saints, the dead in Christ, will be raised. The process is quite clear. The Lord will descend from heaven on his way to the earth, and as he does so, he will rapture, that's to say, catch up the surviving saints. He will raise the dead at the same time, and in one great company, of immortalized beings, they will meet the Lord in the air as he descends and escort him in the direction which he is going, escort the distinguished visitor towards his destination on the earth. In that sense, then, Jesus will bring the dead with him in glory. Now, writing in the later part of the first century, the writer of Hebrews said, All the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophets, including, of course, Enoch and Elijah, died in faith, not having received the promises. Hebrews 11, verses 13 and 39. In Philippians 3, Paul wrote, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. 
Philippians 3.11, not that I may attain to immortality in heaven prior to the resurrection, but that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's the time when at that day, Paul says, he will receive his crown of glory and Christ returns. We are eagerly awaiting the Savior from heaven who will transform our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Philippians 3.20. So you see, the popular scheme that we go to heaven is exactly the reverse of the biblical scheme. We don't go to heaven. Heaven, so to speak, comes down to us in the person of Jesus returning to the earth to raise the dead. Paul could not have believed, nor could the writer to the Hebrews have believed that the dead were existing in heaven in bliss and in joy. They are waiting for the resurrection, and it's at the resurrection that they will be made alive, implying, of course, that prior to the resurrection they are dead. How can you be made alive and become immortal if you've already been made alive and immortalized? It's impossible. Note the warning, however, against saying that the resurrection or immortalization has already happened. Paul is keen to nip in the bud any suggestion which would undermine the great doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Be diligent, he says, to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Compare Mark 8, verse 38. Handle the word of truth accurately, but avoid empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their message or word will spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus have departed from the truth, the gospel that is, by saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. We'll continue with some interesting quotations from contemporary scholars and a brief look at the earliest evidence of post-biblical writers who certainly did not believe what we now teach as the Christian destiny, namely heaven immediately at death. The early church fathers, in fact, protested against the idea that one could make it to glory, so to speak, apart from the resurrection destined to occur when Jesus returns in power and glory to establish his kingdom. Here's what a contemporary scholar has to say about the doctrine of the immortality of the soul and the popular idea that when we die we go instantaneously to glory in heaven. Robert Capon says this, To believe in the immortality of the soul is to believe that though John Brown's body lies a mouldering in the ground, his soul goes marching on, simply because marching on is in the nature of souls, just the way producing apples is the way of apple trees. Bodies die and souls don't. This, he said, is not the point of view of the Bible. In the Bible, souls die. Souls are mortal. When you kick the bucket, you kick it 100%. All of you, there's nothing left to go marching on with. Now, that might be a shocking statement. It undermines the constant emphasis in funeral sermons, obituary notices, and so on. And it's completely contrary to the language of Christians which seems to be laced with concepts about when I go to heaven at death and so on. So-and-so has gone to heaven. But the truth is that none of that is biblical language. And if we Christians want to sound like Jesus, we should begin to talk about inheriting the kingdom of God and the life of the age to come via resurrection when Jesus returns to inaugurate his great kingdom upon a renewed earth. Now, the information we're presenting here really is accessible uh, to the public in a very 
easy fashion. All they need to do is to go to the library and consult, for example, the celebrated Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible. We read in Volume 1, page 802, No biblical text authorizes the statement that the soul is separated from the body at the moment of death. In Christian Words and Christian Meanings by John Burnaby, pages 148 and 149, I read this. Greek philosophers had argued that the dissolution which we call death happens to nothing but bodies, and that the souls of men are by their native constitution immortal. The Greek word for immortality occurs only once in the New Testament, and there it belongs to none but the king of kings. The immortality of the soul is no part of the Christian creed, just as it's no part of Christian anthropology to divide soul and body and confine the real man, the essence of personality, to a supposedly separable soul for which embodiment is imprisonment. Jesus taught no doctrine of everlasting life for disembodied souls, such as no Jew loyal to the faith of his fathers could have accepted or even understood. But Jewish belief was in the raising of the dead at the last day. Uh, we should have to comment there that the word uh, immortality actually occurs more than once in the New Testament, but on no occasion does it possibly refer to the innate immortality of the soul. Why then do churches constantly say that disembodied souls have gone to heaven or hell? Note this comment from uh, companion Bible writer uh, E.W. Bullinger on 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, the famous absent from the body and present with the Lord. He says this, It's little less than a crime for anyone to pick out certain words and frame them into a sentence, not only disregarding the scope and context, but ignoring the other words in the verse, and then quote the words absent from the body, present with the Lord, with a view to dispensing with the hope of the resurrection, which is, after all, the subject of the whole passage, as though it were unnecessary, and as though present with the Lord is obtainable without the resurrection. End of quotation. So the fact is that presence with Jesus in the future is unattainable apart from the resurrection to occur when Jesus returns to inaugurate the kingdom. Professor A.F. Knight says in his book Law and Grace, In the Old Testament, man is never considered to be a soul dwelling in a body, a soul that will one day be set free from the suppression of the body, at the death of that body, like a bird released from a cage. The Hebrews were not dualists in their understanding of God's world. End of quotation. Rodney Clapp, in his book Families at the Crossroads, pages 95 and 97, says this, Following Greek and medieval Christian thought, we often sharply separate the soul and body and emphasize that the individual soul survives death. What's more, we tend to believe the disembodied soul has escaped to heaven, to a more pleasant and fully alive existence. We mistakenly envision the Christian hope as an individual affair, a matter of separate souls taking flight to heaven. But none of this was the case for the ancient Israelites. And none of it, we might add, was the case for Jesus and his very Jewishly based teaching. Martin Luther says this, I think that there's not a place in Scripture of more force for the dead who have fallen asleep than Ecclesiastes 9.5, the dead know nothing at all, understanding nothing of our state and condition. 
And all of this is against the invocation of saints and the fiction of purgatory. Well, Protestant evangelicals are keen to point to the fiction of purgatory, but are they ready to point to their own fiction of surviving souls in heaven or hell? Heaven in the Bible, says J.A.T. Robinson in his book In the End God, page 104, heaven in the Bible is nowhere the destination of the dying. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, in his sermon on the parable of Lazarus, says this, It is indeed very generally uh, supposed that the souls of good men, as soon as they are discharged from the body, go directly to heaven. But this opinion has not the least foundation in the oracles of God. On the contrary, our Lord says to Mary, After the resurrection, touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. End of quotation. Would that Methodists would follow their own leader in their belief about the condition of man after death. Uh, Dr. Shirley Guthrie, in his celebrated Christian doctrine, says this on page 378. And incidentally, Dr. Guthrie is Professor of Systematic Theology at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. I quote, We have to talk about a point of view that from the perspective of Christian faith is falsely optimistic because it does not take death seriously enough. Because the position we're about to criticize and reject is just what many believe is the foundation of the Christian hope for the future. We reject it not to destroy hope for eternal life, but to defend an authentically biblical Christian hope. We're referring to belief in the immortality of the soul. This doctrine was not taught by the biblical writers themselves, but was common in the pagan, Greek, and oriental religions of the ancient world in which the Christian church was born. Some of the earliest Christian theologians were influenced by it, read the Bible in the light of it, and introduced it into the thinking of the church. It has been with us ever since. Calvin accepted it, and so did the classical confession of the Reformed churches the Westminster Confession. According to this doctrine, my body will die, but I myself will not really die. What happens to me at death, then, is that my immortal soul escapes from my mortal body. My body dies, but I myself live on and return to the spiritual realm from which I came and to which I really belong. If we follow the Protestant Reformation in seeking to ground our faith on Scripture alone, we must reject this traditional hope for the future based on the immortality of the soul. Death does not mean that the immortal divine part of us has departed to live on somewhere else. It means that life has left us, that our lives have come to an end, that we are dead and gone. According to Scripture, my soul is just as human, creaturely, finite, and mortal as my body. It's simply the life of my body. We have no hope at all if our hope is in our own inbuilt immortality. So then, do souls go to heaven? I think the evidence is accumulating here that the whole fabric on which this idea of a post-mortem existence in heaven or hell is built is frail indeed and really should be toppled and replaced with something more solidly biblical. While Jehovah's Witnesses and others are labeled cultists because they say that the soul does not go to heaven when a person dies, 
The records of early church history are testimony to the fact that actually what we call orthodoxy is really the culprit. Did the early church teach the separation of a conscious soul from its body at the moment of death and its immediate departure to heaven? Now, I'm not here discussing the condition of the soul, as the church fathers understood it, but the question of its immediate location at death. Here are the words of Irenaeus, famous church father of the mid-second century in his famous Against Heresies, Book 5. He says this, Some who are reckoned among the orthodox go beyond the prearranged plan for the exaltation of the just and are ignorant of the methods by which they are disciplined beforehand for incorruption. They thus entertain heretical opinions. For the heretics, not admitting the salvation of their flesh, affirm that immediately upon their death they shall pass above the heavens. Now this is my note added in parenthesis. I observe here that Irenaeus says that it's the heretics who teach that the soul goes immediately to heaven at death. But today, according to present orthodoxy, it's the heretics who teach that souls do not go immediately to heaven or hell. This makes Irenaeus, as well as John Wesley, a heretic, as we see from the quotation from Wesley I read just a little earlier. Now, continuing with Irenaeus' statement, Those persons, therefore, who reject a resurrection affecting the whole man and do their best to remove it from the Christian scheme know nothing as to the plan of resurrection. For they do not choose to understand that if these things are as they say, the Lord himself, in whom they profess to believe, did not rise again on the third day, but must have immediately upon his expiring departed on high, leaving his body in the earth. But the facts are that for three days the Lord dwelt in the place where the dead were, as Jonas remained three days and three nights in the whale's belly, Matthew 12:40. David says, when prophesying of him, you have delivered my soul from the nethermost hell or grave. And on rising the third day, he said to Mary, Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. John 20, verse 17. How then must not these men be put to confusion who allege that their inner man, the soul, leaving the body here, ascends into the supercelestial place? For as the Lord went away in the midst of the shadow of death, Psalm 86, 23, where the souls of the dead were, and afterwards arose in the body, and after the resurrection was taken up into heaven, it's obvious that the souls of his disciples also shall go away into the invisible place, that's to say Hades, and there remain until the resurrection, awaiting that event. Then receiving their bodies and rising in their entirety bodily, just as the Lord arose, they shall come thus into the presence of God. As our Master did not at once take flight to heaven, but awaited the time of his resurrection, so we ought also to await the time of our resurrection. Inasmuch, therefore, Irenaeus continues, as the opinions of certain orthodox persons are derived from heretical discourses, they are both ignorant of God's dispensations, of the mystery of the resurrection of the just, and of the earthly kingdom which is the beginning of incorruption. By means of this kingdom, those who shall be worthy are accustomed gradually to partake of the divine nature. End of quotation. And so Irenaeus here, in 150 AD or so, 
condemns the whole of our so-called orthodox tradition about what happens at death, the tradition, that is, which eventually swamped the Bible teaching from the third century onwards. Now, here's another protest from Justin Martyr against what later became orthodoxy and remains so to this day. And his protest is no less incisive than Irenaeus' objections just read. In his dialogue with Trypho, chapter 80, he says, They who maintain the wrong opinion say that there is no resurrection of the flesh. As in the case of a yoke of oxen, if one or other is loosed from the yoke, neither of them can plough alone. So neither can soul or body alone effect anything if they be unyoked from their communion. In other words, the soul can have no separate active existence. That's my additional note there. For what is man, says Justin, but the reasonable animal composed of body and soul? Is the soul by itself man? No. But the soul of man, would the body be called man? No. But it's called the body of man. If then neither of these is by itself man, but that which is made up of the two together is called man, and God is called man to life and resurrection, he is co called not a part, but the whole, which is the soul and body. Well, they say the soul is incorruptible, being a part of God inspired by him then what thanks are due to him, and what manifestation of his power and goodness is it if he purpose to save what is by nature saved? But no thanks are due to one who saves what is his own, for this is to save himself. How then did Christ raise the dead, their souls or their bodies? Manifestly both. If the resurrection were only spiritual, it was requisite that he, in raising the dead, should show the body lying apart by itself and the soul living apart by itself. But now he did not do so, but raised the body. Why do we any longer endure those unbelieving arguments and fail to see that we are retrograde, retrograding when we listen to such an argument as this, that the soul is immortal, but the body mortal and incapable of being revived? For this doctrine of the immortality of the soul we used to hear from Plato, even before we learned the truth. If then the Saviour said this, and proclaimed salvation to the soul alone, what new thing beyond what we heard from Plato did he bring us? End of quotation. So Justin thus implies that teaching on immediate survival of the soul in heaven or hell is Platonism, not Christianity. Justin is here refuting the arguments of Gnosticism, which denied the resurrection of the flesh. Traditional Christianity has taken a similar, if slightly different, tack by including in the creed a belief in the resurrection of the body, while also teaching an immediate salvation of the soul alone in a conscious disembodied state. This is said to be the real person, albeit disembodied. But such an idea is flatly contradicted not only by the Bible, but by Justin and Irenaeus as early church spokesmen, and they identify that pagan notion of the immortal soul as coming from Plato and not from Scripture. In the famous dialogue with Trypho uh, that uh, Justin recorded for us, Trypho says this, Do you really admit that this place, Jerusalem, shall be rebuilt? Do you expect your people to be gathered together and made joyful with Christ and the patriarchs? 
And then Justin replies as follows. I and many others are of that opinion and believe that this will take place, as you are assuredly aware. But on the other hand, I signify to you that many who belong, or as some uh, commentators suggest the text has been corrupted here, he may have said, who do not belong to the pure and pious faith, think otherwise. Moreover, I pointed out to you that some who are called Christians, who are godless, impious heretics, teach doctrines that are in every way blasphemous, atheistical, and foolish. I choose to follow not men or men's teachings, but God and the doctrines delivered by him. For if you have fallen in with some who are called Christians, but who do not admit the truth of the resurrection, who say that there is no resurrection of the dead, and that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven, do not imagine that they are Christians. But I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem, which will then be built, adorned, and enlarged, as the prophets Ezekiel, Isaiah, and others declare. We have perceived, moreover, that the expression, the day of the Lord, is connected with this subject. And further, there was a certain man with us whose name was John, one of the apostles of Christ, who prophesied by a revelation that was made to him that those who believed in our Christ would dwell a thousand years in Jerusalem and that thereafter the general and the eternal resurrection of all men would take place. That's the end of the quotation from Justin Martyr's discussion with Trifo. Now here is the statement of Justin in full, the one on the question of the intermediate state. I quote, For if you have fallen in with some who are called Christians, but who do not admit the truth of the resurrection, and venture to blaspheme the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who say that there is no resurrection of the dead, and that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven, do not imagine that they are Christians, just as one, if he would rightly consider it, would not admit that the Sadducees, or similar sects of the Genestai, Meristai, Galileans, Hellenists, Pharisees, Baptists, are Jews, but only called Jews, worshipping God with the lips, as God declared, but the heart was far from him. But I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem, which will then be built, adorned and enlarged, as the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah and others declare. That's from the Dialogue with Trifo, chapter 80, Antinicene Fathers, volume 1, published by Edmonds, page 239. Interesting to note that the Latin church father, Tertullian, often known as the father of Western Christianity, is another who would strongly take issue with the modern orthodox view about what happens at the moment of death and about the soul going to heaven. He protested against the idea that the soul departs from the body at death and goes to a heavenly reward. He said this, Plato dispatches at once to heaven such souls as he pleases. To the question whether the soul is withdrawn at death, we now give the answer. The Stoics place only their own souls, that is, the souls of the wise, in the mansions above. Plato, it is true, does not allow this destination to all the souls indiscriminately, of even all the philosophers, but only those who have cultivated their philosophy out of love to boys. That's to say homosexuals. In this system, then, says Tertullian, 
The souls of the wise are carried up on high into the ether. All other souls, they, the Platonists, thrust down to Hades. And then he addresses the issue of what happens to Christians when they die. By ourselves, the lower regions of Hades are not supposed to be a bare cavity, nor some subterranean sewer of the world, but a vast deep space in the interior of the earth, and a concealed recess in its very bowels. Inasmuch as we, re we read that Christ, in his death, spent three days in the heart of the earth, that is, in the secret inner recess which is hidden in the earth and enclosed by the earth, and superimposed on the abysmal depths which still lie lower down, or which lie still lower down. Now, although Christ is God, yet being also man, he died according to the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15.3, and according to the same Scriptures was buried. With the same law of his being, he fully complied by remaining in Hades in the form and condition of a dead man, nor did he ascend into the heights of heaven before descending first into the lower parts of the earth, that he might there make the patriarchs and prophets partakers of himself. And I add this note, nothing is said in the Bible about Jesus altering the condition of the patriarchs while he was in Hades. Then Tertullian continues, This being the case, you must suppose Hades to be a subterranean region, and you must keep at arm's length those who are too proud to believe that the souls of the faithful deserve a place in the lower regions. These persons who are, quote, servants above their Lord and disciples above their master, end quote, would no doubt spurn to receive the comfort of the resurrection if they must expect it in Abraham's bosom. But it was for this purpose, they say, that Christ descended into hell, that we might not ourselves have to descend thither. Well then, they say, what difference is there between heathens and Christians if the same prison awaits them all when dead? But I, Tertullian, say... How indeed shall the soul mount up to heaven, where Christ is already sitting at the Father's right hand, when as yet the archangel's trumpet has not been heard by the command of God, when as yet those whom the coming of the Lord is to find on the earth have not been caught up into the air to meet him at his coming, in company with the dead in Christ, who shall be the first to arise, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and following, to no one is heaven opened. When the world indeed shall pass away, then the kingdom of heaven shall be opened. And that's from his Treatise on the Soul, chapter 55. Another church father, Hippolytus, living approximately from 170 to 236 A.D., certainly did not believe that souls were in heaven. I quote, But now we must speak of Hades, in which the souls both of the righteous and the unrighteous are detained. The righteous will obtain the incorruptible and unfading kingdom, those who indeed are at present detained in Hades, but not in the same place with the unrighteous. Thus far then on the subject of Hades, in which the souls of all are detained until the time God has determined, and then he will accomplish a resurrection of all, not by transferring souls into other bodies, but by raising the bodies themselves. That's in his writing entitled Against Plato on the Cause of the Universe 1 and 2.
And our modern scholars realize that the view of death which has prevailed and is now promoted in church constantly is not biblical. Far from it, it is amazingly actually pagan and Gnostic. Moreover, as the above quotations from the early apologists for Christianity show, the idea of going to heaven or hellfire immediately at death was a novel, heretical doctrine not taught by the church for some 300 years after Christ. In a standard text of Christian dogmatics, in our contemporary times, we read the following. And this is from Christian Dogmatics by Bratton and Jensen, Volume 2, page 503. They say this, The Hellenization process by which Christianity adopted many Greek, and I add in square brackets, pagan, many Greek thought patterns led in a different direction as the eschatological hope came to be expressed in Hellenistic categories. Irenaeus said, It's manifest that the souls of his disciples also, upon whose account the Lord underwent these things, shall go away in the invisible place allotted to them by God, and there remain until the resurrection, awaiting that event. Then, receiving their bodies and rising in their entirety, that is, bodily, just as the Lord arose, they shall come into the presence of God. Irenaeus' statement contains the concept of an abode or purgatory in which the soul of the dead remains until the universal resurrection. We shall not, we shall not denounce this as a deviation from biblical teaching since the point of the assertion is anti-Gnostic. Irenaeus wanted to reject the Gnostic idea that end, at the end of this earthly life, the soul immediately ascends to its heavenly abode. Let me repeat that. Irenaeus wanted to reject the Gnostic idea that at the end of this earthly life, the soul immediately ascends to its heavenly abode. As the early fathers fought against the pagan idea that a part of the human person is simply immortal, it was important for them to assert that there is no rectilinear ascent to God. Once we die, life is over. That's from Christian Dogmatics, Broughton and Jensen, Volume 2, page 503, and that section was written by Hans Schwartz, Professor of Protestant Theology at the University of Regensburg in Federal Republic of Germany. Now, there's a further impressive protest against the popular idea that the dead survive as conscious souls in heaven, and one might expect that such a protest would initiate a wide-scale reform amongst the clergy. Alan Richardson, a celebrated British biblical theologian, writes in his A Theological Word Book of the Bible, pages 111-112, as follows, quote, The Bible writers, holding fast to the conviction that the created order owes its existence to the wisdom and love of God, and is therefore essentially good, could not conceive of life after death as a disembodied existence. And I add there in square brackets, however, millions of sincere believers are now taught exactly that in church. They're taught exactly that false principle in church. Alan Richardson goes on. He refers to Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 3, We shall not be found naked. In other words, to be disembodied is the very thing that Paul 
shrinks from experiencing. Alan Richardson then says that the Bible writers are looking for a renewal under conditions of the intimate unity of body and soul, which was human life as they knew it. Hence, death was thought of as the death of the whole man, and such phrases as freedom from death, imperishability or immortality, could only properly be used to describe what is meant by the phrase eternal or living God, who only has immortality. 1 Timothy 6.16 Man does not possess within himself the quality of deathlessness, but must, if he is to overcome the destructive power of death, receive it as the gift of God who raised Christ from the dead and put death aside like a covering garment. 1 Corinthians 15.53 and 54 It is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that this possibility for man, 2 Timothy 1.10, has been brought to life, and the hope confirmed that the corruption mentioned in Romans uh, 1 verse 7, which is a universal feature of human life, will be effectively overcome. That's the end of the quotation from Alan Richardson's A Theological Word Book of the Bible, pages 111-112. And so finally, the fundamental confusion about life after death, which has so permeated traditional Christianity is brilliantly described by Dr. Paul Althaus in his book The Theology of Martin Luther, Fortress Press, 1966, pages 413 and 414. We urge you to, to, play, to pay close attention to this remarkable statement because I think it calls for a gigantic reform, indeed repentance on the part of our churches, who have constantly proclaimed something in the name of Christ that really derives from the pagan world. I quote, The hope of the early church centered on the resurrection of the last day. It is this which first calls the dead into eternal life. This resurrection happens to the man and not only to the body. Paul speaks of the resurrection not of the body but of the dead. This understanding of the resurrection implicitly understands death as also affecting the whole man. Thus, in traditional orthodoxy, the original biblical concepts have been replaced by ideas from Hellenistic Gnostic dualism. The New Testament idea of the resurrection, which affects the whole man, has had to give way to the immortality of the soul. The last day also loses its significance for souls have received all that's decisively important long before this. Eschatological tension is no longer strongly directed to the day of Jesus' coming. The difference between this and the hope of the New Testament, says Dr. Paul Althaus, is very great. End of quotation. And that difference, we suggest, may be witnessed in contemporary preaching at funerals or in obituary notice notices which, though claiming the Bible as their source, reflect a pagan Platonism, a pagan Gnostic Platonism, which both the New Testament, the early church fathers, and modern informed scholars reject. Can belief in pagan ideas promoted in the name of Jesus result in a knowledge of the truth which leads to salvation? Is not this obvious paganism, which has found its way as a usurper into Christianity, isn't this obvious paganism a cause for alarm and a reason for returning to the truth of the Bible?
You have been listening to Focus on the Kingdom. Sir Anthony Buzzard has written a book entitled The Coming Kingdom of the Messiah, a solution to the riddle of the New Testament. For this book and other free literature, contact us at Atlanta Bible College, Box 100,000, Morrow, Georgia, 30260. That's Atlanta Bible College, Box 100,000, Morrow, Georgia, 30260. Or you may call 1-800-347-4261. That's 1-800-347-4261. You can email us at anthonybuzzard at mindspring.com and visit our webpage at www.focusonthekingdom.org, where a complete series of these programs is available. Join us again for our continuing discussion of the Christian gospel of the kingdom as Jesus preached it.